You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Milwaukee Mafia. I am Eric Waltergant. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, got anything exciting to talk about besides Mafia stuff today? Or Besides Mafia yeah, stuff? I don't know, you got anything cool going on that we should talk about? little banter before we start? Oh, well you know, uh, since you asked... I got a new book out. That's right. You do have a new book out. Yeah, I do, which I really wasn't going to talk about on here, but since you asked. Congratulations. And you want to talk a little bit about what the book is about? Just briefly. Yeah, it's not a mafia topic, right? No, 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 no. When I'm not writing about history and crime, I watch a lot of movies. A lot of bad movies, A lot of bad movies. (laughs) And so I published a book about a guy named Carl Freund, who nobody listening has any idea who that is, but he worked on The Mummy, Dracula, a whole bunch of really classic films in like the 20s and 30s. So if you're into that, look it up. It's out there, but I'm not going to be really pimping it out on here because there's nothing to do with the mafia or even Wisconsin. So totally separate world from what I normally do. And actually, I have something else you can kind of talk about. What's that? So I heard this rumor that there not only now is a MilwaukeeMafia.com, but there is also a GavinSchmidt.com. Do you want to touch on the differences? Yeah, sure. So Milwaukee Mafia was where pretty much everything went. And it was decided that Milwaukee Mafia should be strictly crime. So a second site was created called GavinSchmidt.com. And anytime I write on something that's not crime, it goes on there. And I do have a long history. Uh, Again, I've written a lot of film stuff over the years we don't really talk about. And if you're interested in that, it's there. All right. So originally the topic was going to be Louis Pichero. And I ended up cutting it. I'm not going to do it. And Louis Pichero was this guy who ends up killing his fiance or ex-fiance in a bar. I cut it because there isn't really like a strong mafia connection. This guy happens to be the uncle of Frank Balistrieri before Frank was really a big deal. So there is that family tie. But I'm like, I don't want people to get the impression that some guy killing his fiance is somehow a mafia thing because it's not. So I cut it. Not talking about it. Okay, so that's not the subject. That's so what? The subject. <laughs> what Instead, we are going to talk about Michael Lombardi was the sheriff of Waukesha County. So Michael Lombardi was born, as people are, and around <laughs> 1933, he was hired on as a special deputy for the Waukesha Sheriff's Department. He rose up to the ranks of deputy sheriff, which was a full-time position. He was married, and with his first wife, he had seven children. She ended up divorcing him in 1949 because of cruelty. I don't know exactly what. That doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't sound good. Then, in the 1950s, he gets hired on as the actual sheriff. He's not just a deputy anymore. He's the regular sheriff, which, for people who don't know, is an elected position. So he had to run for that. He got the job as sheriff. The incident that's going to end up getting him in trouble happens on August 1st, 1956. He becomes aware of an incident at the club run by Dominic Pichero, who is the brother of Louis Pichero, who we're not talking about. (laughs) So another uncle of Frank Bailstreet. 
Here's that there was an incident there where Dominic Pichero ends up beating the crap out of his son, and he refuses to do anything about it. He ignores it. Refusing to do it, it's going to get him in some trouble. We'll come back to this shortly. Okay. Having been divorced, he now marries his second wife. Shortly after the wedding, Dominic Pichero, not related to this guy getting married, Dominic Pichero is arrested by the feds for violating the White Slave Traffic Act, which is a terrible name, which is basically pimping over state lines. It's bringing women over state lines for, you know, those kind of things. Interesting. Yeah. While he's on trial for this, one of the women testifies in federal court that she provided, quote-unquote, favors to Sheriff Lombardi in exchange for him not shutting down the club that they were operating wow. out of. <laughs> this guy is not doing good things. So. No. Following this testimony, he was suspended. Following this testimony, the Waukesha County Board authorized the DA to launch a John Doe probe to look into law enforcement in Waukesha County. If the testimony they heard was true, there were irregularities in how Dominic Pichero was treated. So, they're now calling a John Doe proceeding, which, as I've explained a couple times before, it's a special thing we do in Wisconsin where you aren't necessarily investigating a specific crime, but you call in a bunch of people related to something you think is going on, and they all testify secretly, is never released what they say, and they find if any crimes were committed. So they're kind of looking into the sheriff here, but really they're going to call anybody who's connected to this club or anything else, and so who knows what could come out of it. <laughs> but specifically, in this case, it's pretty obvious they're looking at the sheriff. Right. John Doe probe is launched at last 13 days. At the end of it, some interesting details came out on Sheriff Lombardi. Here we go. Okay. Details came out about the assault that Dominic Pichero had on his son. Investigators learned that it took place at this club called Club 166, which was in Menominee Falls. Eyewitnesses said that Dominic, the father, severely and brutally beat his son Peter about wow. the head and face, including kicking and spitting on him, while Peter made no effort to fight back. While this was going on, the sheriff's office was called, and deputies were sent to the scene. When they arrived, the assault was over. Peter's jaw was broken on both sides of his face. The sheriff's deputies took Peter to the hospital, where he was hospitalized for several days. On the trip there, Peter at first said that he was injured when he fell down the stairs, but he later changed his story and said that he was beaten by his father and must have been hit at least 40 times. Wow. One of the deputies who came to the scene made a report with the complaint of assault attached to it. He listed the names of witnesses on the report, but this report later went missing. The sheriff received the report, obviously before it went missing, and he said he would take care of it personally. He interviewed Peter, the son, at the hospital. Peter said he would not file a complaint against his father. He said it wasn't his father that injured him. He had hurt himself. So now we change back to the first story again. Yeah. Lombardi made no further investigation. He made no report to the district attorney, but the next day the district attorney heard rumors about the assault and asked Lombardi about it. Lombardi said that he investigated the matter and it turned out that it was just a family problem and the son did not want to sign a complaint against his father, so the matter didn't require any further attention. The sheriff neglected to tell the district attorney that one of the deputies had already written up an assault complaint. There were several witnesses who the sheriff did not speak to 
The sheriff did not interview any of these witnesses or name them to the district attorney, and the district attorney was not made aware of just how serious Peter was injured. Let me stop you there because I got a couple questions here. So, sure. so there, there's a complaint written up, and there's all these eyewitnesses. So, if there's like strong evidence that, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but if there is strong evidence that an assault happened. But somebody does not want to mm-hmm. put a complaint against the person because it's his father, like in this situation. Right. Does he, as the sheriff, still have the obligation to like investigate this and possibly charge him, even though the son doesn't want to put a complaint against him? Right. Right. Exactly. If you and another person are in a fight and you get like the worst beating and you don't want to press charges, there's really not much they can do about that. But in this case, when several people see it, they can still file the charges. Because even if the son refuses to testify, anybody else there could testify. And still bring the charges against them or right. Even at the very least, if he did this in the club, that could be disorderly conduct or something else because people had to witness this going Massive on. Massive beating, yeah. Yeah. So, you don't do that in front of a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. We shouldn't do it at all. Well, yeah. but, <laughs> but, you, but you definitely shouldn't. Other people don't like to see that either. All right. So, during the John Doe probe, it came out that the sheriff, sure enough, turns out to be a regular at Club 166, and he was actually a longtime close friend of the owner, Dominic Petura. An employee of the club said that between January 1955 and June 1956, liquor was served later than legal hours, gambling was going on at all times. Detectives from the state treasurer's office found evidence corroborating this, and they said there's no way that Sheriff Lombardi could not know this with how often he was at this club. In July 1956, Petrero hired two women to work at the club as waitresses and prostitutes, dividing their fees with the Pachuras. A third woman was hired later. They saw Lombardi at the club during the time that they were employed there. At Dominic Pachero's request, one of the women, Greta, went out to dinner with Dominic and Lombardi. At dinner, the three were there, and Greta was told that Lombardi was keeping the heat off them, meaning that the sheriff was protecting them from being arrested for whatever they were doing there. In return, Greta was then asked to extend her favors to Lombardi. She agreed, and she and Lombardi went to bed together. This is the same lady who testified at the earlier trial. Mm -hmm. So this didn't happen twice. It's the same lady. Furthermore, just to show how close these guys actually were, Sheriff Lombardi was the best man at Dominic Pachero's wedding. (laughs) And that when Lombardi attended the annual sheriff's convention at Anago, Dominic Pachero accompanied him and they shared a hotel room at the police convention. This seems like a strange thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Lombardi later testified that the hotels and motels were filled and they could not find accommodations and they had to share a room together. But the deputies said this isn't true and before they ever left Waukesha, they already were told where they could find both men (laughs) in Anago. So they had their arrangements already worked out. Uh, There were some later people commenting that it's uh, a little bit unusual that a guy that you know happens to be running a brothel is (laughs) hanging out with you at a police convention. But, you know, whatever. Following all this testimony, Lombardi was charged with 15 counts of improperly using his office. Some of these charges were concerning Club 166, while about a half dozen of them were for reports that he would routinely toss drunk driving cases that his deputies handed over to him. I didn't really go into it, but there's also times where his deputies arrested somebody for drunk driving. The ticket is sitting on his desk to pass over to the DA, and he just throws it in the trash. (laughs) He's like, whatever. From the sounds of it, this guy, this wasn't like Dominic wasn't his like weak spot. He Mm -hmm. was just a really bad sheriff all around. 
He, yeah, I mean, you could say that. I don't know. If, I don't know if I would say he's not his weak spot. I mean, when you're openly, when you're the sheriff and you're openly hanging out at a place that's gambling and has women for sale, that's a pretty bad yeah. look for a sheriff. But what I'm, I guess, what I'm saying is, is that it could just be maybe he wasn't a bad guy. But he just happened to be friends with this guy who was kind of a bad guy and just got wrapped into things because of that. But it sounds like he was doing all sorts of corrupt stuff within his sheriff position, throwing away drunk driving tickets when he shouldn't have been and stuff like that. So it sounds like he was just a bad sheriff all around. It wasn't just a bad sheriff when it came to Dominic. You follow me? Yeah, I follow you. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a fair interpretation. All right. So Lombardi is bound over for trial. Uh, they call in a special judge because they didn't want a Waukesha judge overseeing Waukesha sheriff trial <laughs> um, for obvious reasons. And I'm not going to go through that because we already explained everything that he was accused of. And he's ultimately convicted of nine counts. The sheriff uh, gave the defense some time to file some motions, which they did. And they said they would appeal to the state Supreme Court. But ultimately, Sheriff Lombardi is sentenced to 60 days in jail. <laughs> Really? Come on. And find $1,600. You have got to be kidding me. And that's, we're, we're not even there yet. Not even there yet. <laughs> he doesn't end up doing the 60 days in jail, does he? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Get so us there. <laughs> Sheriff Lombardi is ordered to serve his time in Milwaukee County because, again, it'd be weird for him to be in the Waukesha County Jail, which he kind of oversaw until recently. So he's in the Milwaukee County Jail to avoid uh, anything like that. The judge at sentencing said that other than the allegations around Club 166, what Lombardi did was really no different than what any other sheriff might do in any other county. He goes, really, it's up to the sheriff to decide which charges to forward to a DA or not. So... Even though it doesn't look good to throw away drunk driving arrests, he goes, there's nothing illegal about it. I mean, that's his call to make. So, And this is true? Well, sure. Really? Okay. It's the same as any time you get pulled over. An officer can write you a ticket, give you a warning, do whatever. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, I question, like, once the officer has written the ticket... Right. I feel like it would then be the DA's decision whether to throw it out or charge him with it. I think that's generally the case, but I don't know if this is still how it works or if this was how it, just how it worked here at this time. But in this particular case, everything went through the sheriff yes. to go to the DA. So the sheriff had basically the same authority that any officer would have in turning things over. Okay. And that's interesting. I mean, no, it's it's completely different when it's to the point of, you know, someone running a house of prostitution. You cannot throw those, <laughs> those tickets away. away. Yeah. <laughs> that's not okay. But for what's basically a traffic ticket, it's not seen as that bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously drunk driving is bad, but we do think of it differently now than they did then. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of times the officers were letting people go back then. Right. Whereas, right. So... Now it's it's pretty serious, and back then, a lot of times they'd be like, "No, just drive slow and or be safe, safe yeah. <laughs> or I'll follow you home, I'll or follow you home, or right. something like that." Yeah. All right. So the Capital Times, this is the Madison newspaper. They wrote an editorial blasting the judge, and he said, "Well, if this is routine business. This is business as usual." What you're saying is that it's normal for sheriffs to ignore the law. So this is kind of your point. But they further pointed out that even the Club 166 allegations were not unique. And they said, you know, just recently, 
The sheriff of Brown County in Green Bay had been caught visiting a brothel and borrowing money from the madam there. And they go, so apparently it's a thing. The sheriffs hang out at these places. <laughs> and maybe we'll cover that story on the other podcast sometime, because that's not really a mafia thing at all. But you want to hear about the Brown County Sheriff. <laughs> that just sounds like a good one. So. Yeah. The St. Paul newspaper in Minnesota even writes an editorial about this, which has nothing to do with St. Paul, but it caught their attention. And they're complaining now that Sheriff Lombardi was abusing the Huber Law. As you recall, he was sentenced to 60 days, but he was told right off the bat that if he had good behavior, he would be out in 45 days. <laughs> and after the first 10 days, he was eligible for Huber. And for people who don't know, Huber means that you can go to work during the day and only have to check into the jail at night. Please tell me that they let him out of jail to go be the sheriff. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would be a better story, but no, that is not the case. <laughs> So he's let out to find employment. He's not doesn't actually have a job lined up. So he's going out applying for jobs, and he gets a job working as a jewelry salesman. Which how he has that I don't know, but he gets a job as a jewelry salesman working for a place called the House of Christopher in Milwaukee. The Huber Law was fairly new at the time and was designed for offenders with very minor crimes or to help get payment to abandoned families in the case of non-support. Some guys were in jail because they weren't paying child support. So they said, hey, if we let them go to work they rather than sit in jail, it better help the reason that they're here. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't there for that. Uh, whether his crime was minor or not is debatable. He didn't get very much time, so it's minor in that, that sense. Sucks. But if you're letting a corrupt sheriff walk around during the day, that's that's a bad. Yeah. yeah. Lombardi actually ends up serving an additional month in jail because he refuses to pay his fine. He said that paying the fine would be admitting that he was guilty, and he was not guilty. <laughs> in fact, he was so not guilty that he intended to run for sheriff again that same year, which he did. Oh, my God, he won. No. Okay, good. <laughs> he ends up losing the election that year. Now we're in 1958. He ends up losing the 1958 election to his opponent, 10,000 to 2,000. Wow. So 2,000 people still <laughs> voted, voted for, for him. him yeah. but, he's, but it's a pretty big defeat. So he appeals his conviction because, he's again, he's saying he's not guilty. It reaches the state Supreme Court, and they decided about a year later. It takes a little time. While the court did acknowledge that the sheriff has some flexibility in handling traffic cases, so they agreed with that, they said there really is no excuse for the operation of Club 166. They said, you've been a police officer for 24 years. Even if you didn't hang out there and weren't friends with the club owner, there's no way you could be a cop in the county for 24 for years, years and, and, not not real, yeah, and not realize, not have gone in there and arrested somebody for something yeah. to know what this club was. Yes. And, you know, and that's true. Uh, any officer, any cop who's listens to this, not that I know that any do, but if they did, I mean, they'll back that up. They know what's going on in town. Like, mm. they're not dumb. So, if you're running a gambling club, don't think they don't know. They know. <laughs> <laughs> they're just waiting for the opportunity to bust it, basically. Right. So, you can't outrun a gambling house slash brothel and not have every cop on the force know about it. <laughs> he ends up running for sheriff again the next time. Doesn't win again. Okay. Good. Are we going to, at some point in time, is he going to keep running and get it back? He does not get it back. Okay, good. Does not get it back. <laughs> so this is more or less the end of Michael Lombardi, but the case does come up again in the news a few years later. This time when a man named James D'Amato 
is running for the Waukesha County judge. James D'Amato had been the district attorney when Lombardi was charged with his various crimes, and letters to the local newspaper alleged that D'Amato, as district attorney, should have done more to stop the vice in Waukesha. Why had various people not been charged? And why did the county hire a special prosecutor at the cost of $15,000 rather than just have D'Amato himself go after the sheriff? D'Amato defended himself, and he said, I prosecuted every vice charge that came to my desk. He goes, I can't be responsible for things that didn't come to my desk. (laughs) It's not my fault the guy threw him in the garbage. (laughs) And he said the case against Lombardi was given to a special prosecutor by the county board. He goes, my office didn't hire the guy. It was the county board hired that guy. Which, by the way, it's the right thing to do anyway. Having the Waukesha County DA prosecute the Waukesha County Sheriff is not a good idea. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would. I mean, they have a relationship. You can't. Yeah. You can't really. Ex- Whether they like each other or, or not, not yeah. you can't expect them to. Yeah, it, that's just a terrible idea. Yeah. I would agree with that. He denied that he knew anything about what was going on at Club 166, which is plausible. I don't know how much a DA knows about day-to-day things like that. He was also accused of fixing a ticket for his nephew so his nephew wouldn't lose his license, and he denied this. Whether these things were true or not, or fair accusations or not, they were letters that were printed in the Waukesha newspaper, and I don't know if it's because of the letters, but he did not win the election for judge. After he loses the election, D'Amato sues the newspaper, saying the letters they printed were libel. (laughs) The court disagreed. D'Amato appealed to the Supreme Court, but he died before the Supreme Court made their decision. So, Did they eventually make a decision or did they just never make a decision because he died? They made the decision and although they basically buried it because it didn't matter anymore because he was dead, they were actually kind of on his side with that. Because the law in general, the law says there has to be really two parts. One, if you print or say something, it has to be untrue. If you say something about somebody and it's true... Even if it's really horrible, you can say it. Uh-huh. The other thing is you have to do it out of bad intentions. You have to actually really do it because you're trying to do something bad Ruin for the him. person. Or, yeah. Right. Trying to keep him from winning an election or something. If you like say that. something dishonest about somebody, but you're not doing it out of spite, you're doing it because you're dumb, you don't know any better, you got misinformation, you're not responsible for that. So they interpreted it as what these letters were saying. Because technically, I mean, I feel like the letters that were written were very on a very, very gray line of whether they were true or false. Because technically, he did not try people for things that he probably should have, but it was because they never reached his desk. So they just kind of said, well, it wasn't your fault that you didn't testify it, so this was untrue. Is that kind of your interpretation of it? The way I understand it is the lower court was like, this isn't liable. Like, nothing said here is that bad. Like, nobody here is is saying something that's like that outrageous. But the higher court, the Supreme Court, more or less agreed with D'Amato because they were under the impression that the person who wrote these letters either knew they were false or at least knew they weren't completely accurate. And were sending them in for the sheer purpose of getting him to lose the election. election. Okay, so... The biggest part of it was was that there was some untruth to it, and it was all about trying to ruin his election chances. Right. Interesting. Right. Okay. You can't write into a paper. Well, they shouldn't print it is really what it comes down to. You can write whatever you want to the paper. Paper shouldn't have printed, <laughs> printed it. it. Yeah. yeah. If they couldn't have verified it, they shouldn't have printed it. The biggest question I want to know is, so the guy beat up his kid, yes. Peter and Dominic. 
Do we have any idea why? I don't know why. It never stated why he did it? No. Okay. Maybe there's some reason, but I don't know what that reason is. Okay. The other thing, this is just, I'm probably reading too into this, Mm -hmm. but- You were talking about how he took Dominic to this uh, police thing. They shared a hotel room and stuff like that. Are we to assume that there was a possibility of a relationship between the two? Like in a romantic way? Yeah. I don't think so. Okay, okay. I'm reading way too much into that. (laughs) I mean, Uh, not that I know. I wasn't trying to to imply that. Just kind of like they were sharing a hotel room, which I was like, am I supposed to see that as being in a relationship? But it could just be. A hotel room with you. <laughs> yes, yes, but <laughs> but we don't like the way you talked about it just made me feel like is there no. something more to it than just them, you know, going to this thing no. together? I mean, I guess I don't know, but as far as I there's nothing to suggest that. Okay. All right. All right. So what else you got for this? Okay, so, so time's going on here. Now we're about 10 years after the fact that he was in jail, Lombardi now is divorced by his third wife, Dorothy. Wow. On the grounds of cruel and inhuman treatment. This time I know why. He was alleged to have pointed a gun at her and threatened to shoot. And on another occasion, he held a knife to her throat. So if that's true, not a nice guy. Wow. Dorothy was given their joint bank account, their furniture, and property that they owned outside of New Orleans. Lombardi was allowed to keep his car. At this point, he was unemployed and living off of his pension. So he's still getting his share of pension. (laughs) So they didn't take that away from him either. A few years after this, Waukesha coroner James Welch is convicted of theft and improper use of his office. What he's stealing from the coroner's office, I'm hoping, is money. This reminded the newspaper again. Hey, remember Lombardi when he was corrupt? (laughs) So they checked in on him. He said that now he was unmarried. He didn't want a fourth wife. He worked part-time as a bartender for private parties, but he mostly lived off his pension. So they checked in on him there. Shortly after they checked in with him, in March 1970, He's mentioned once more when a man named Hilmer J. Christopher is caught up in a scheme of allegedly selling stolen typewriters. <laughs> Questioned by authorities, Christopher said that he had worked in retail, specifically pawn shops, from 1947 through 1965. He acknowledged that he or his brother had been the ones who hired Lombardi to sell jewelry when he was out on the Huber Law. They knew that he was in jail, but they couldn't care less. Now, in all fairness to this, I feel like that whoever was asking these questions, whether it was the paper or investigators or whoever it is, I mean, this was like some fishing here. Yeah, we're trying to find something. Yeah. There's no indication to me that Lombardi did anything wrong as a jewelry salesman. And there's no indication that this place he was working for was like a dirty place. So the fact that they would bring this up like 20 years <laughs> after the fact be like, hey, aren't you the guy who hired the corrupt sheriff? Like, <laughs> really kind of a stretch. Further investigations showed that two of these stolen typewriters had been sold to the law office of James D'Amato, the guy who wanted to be judged but didn't get elected. Is this a crazy coincidence? Because it's just I think it's a crazy, crazy coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. Okay. That is strange. He was sold to the law offices of him for $400. After questioning James D'Amato, the investigators decided that neither the lawyer or Christopher had done anything wrong. They said this is just all a misunderstanding. Christopher, because he worked at a pawn shop, regularly scavenged items from condemned buildings. And there's no way he could have known that those typewriters were stolen. So I just kind of got rid of it. But then two years later, 
Now, Christopher is working for the Milwaukee Department of City Development. Why? How? I don't know. <laughs> he's not working for the city of Milwaukee. He's fired after he's accused of asking for bribes from a pool hall in exchange for the building not being condemned and torn down to make a parking lot. Whatever his job is, apparently, it's redeveloping neighborhoods. And so he's going around and asking people to pay him money so he doesn't, doesn't tear down their buildings. The FBI was called in to probe this matter because public corruption is a federal crime. What the outcome of that is, I don't know. It's interesting that the guy who the sheriff went to work for ends up being this very questionable guy. And there's a couple of really loose links to the DA, James D'Amato, who, so, so as far as I can tell, is a perfectly legit guy. Didn't do anything wrong. It's interesting that... That it all just kind of does a he circle got, he, Yeah, he way. got smeared first with Lombardi. And now he's later connected to this stolen typewriter thing. So these three guys keep running into each other somehow. You lost me a little bit with the Christopher thing. So like when Christopher is doing this typewriter thing, the only link to him is, is that Lombardi had worked for him at one point in time. But during this typewriter stuff... Mm -hmm. There's no evidence of them having any, even any contact, correct? Right. No. Yeah. yeah like Lombardi is long out of his life at this point, but it's just after he's caught or with, quote unquote caught, with you these, know, with these stolen typewriters, that's what they bring up. They, they bring him in front of like a press conference or whatever and they ask him like, aren't you the guy who hired that sheriff? <laughs> And, and that's all got to be a coincidence. I'm I pretty mean, sure it's all a coincidence. Any sort of connection. These are things I'll probably look into more at a later time. And maybe it'll turn out that this Christopher guy is really bad because I don't think I'm telling a big secret here. A lot of pawn shops are also places where stolen goods get filtered through. <laughs> yeah. So it's possible that Lombardi was knowingly or unknowingly selling stolen jewelry. Possible. I don't know that. I can't back that up. I probably shouldn't even suggest it. But maybe there's more going on here. I don't know. A lot of it is just sort of like suggested. There's not enough evidence to state there that there is anything going on, but it is very peculiar how so much is connected. Right. It, I trail. find it, it odd that these guys will come up and the same names keep cropping up, but I don't have any solid proof. So I have to be very serious when I say I don't know. I don't know anything that's going on here. It's just a wild coincidence. Maybe I missed it in the previously in the story. So Dominic had the brothel mm -hmm. and did whatever happened with him after all this happened. I assume that after they got the sheriff out, that brothel was almost immediately shut down. As far as I know, yes. The sheriff is out. Dominic and his wife both go to prison. Okay. So they, they ended up doing time for both of them because I assume yep. she was like working in the brothel or something? Not in that way. She was working in the same way he was working in it. Just that she owned it and she oh, knew what was okay. going on. Okay. And another guy, the guy in Minnesota who, I didn't even mention him, but the guy in Minnesota who was sending women to, to the... Yeah. He ends up going to prison too. Okay. And he went to prison because he's doing that. You talked about that weird law that yeah. that's it's passing called, women it's over called, the It's board. called the White Slave Traffic Act. And that that's sincerely what it's called. Does this still exist today? It still exists today. Yeah, wow. It's a terrible name. But yeah, back when it was passed, which was like the 1910s, I don't know exactly, but somewhere around there, running women over state lines for the purposes of prostitution was known as white slavery because- 
It was assumed that these women were doing it against their will, so they were basically captives. And I guess, presumably, most of these women were white women, Mm -hmm. so it was white slavery. It's an absolutely terrible name, (laughs) but that was what they called it, and that's what it is. It's the White Slave Traffic Act. So a lot of times now they call it the Man Act, M-A-N-N Act, because the guy who passed it or submitted the bill was Senator Mann or Congressman Mann. So that doesn't sound as bad. But no, it, the official, the way it was, was written was white slave traffic. So terrible name. Okay. But it's still technically illegal. I don't think it's enforced very often. So like today, if a prostitute were to cross the state lines and do prostitution in another state, could mm. they hypothetically be charged? Is that or, – or is there some more – something more to it that it's got to be like a it's, person it's trafficking? It's hard to say because they don't usually go after the women. They usually go after somebody who's profiting off of it. it. Okay. So there was a case in Hurley, Wisconsin. This is the thing. This is how weird this law is. So there was a house of prostitution in Hurley, Wisconsin. For whatever reason, I don't know why, the business there did their laundry. They sent their laundry out to another state. Okay. To Michigan, probably, because Hurley is right there. Right. So So they sent it out to this professional place to get clean and and sent back. And they ended up getting busted on that. It wasn't because they were bringing the women over the border. In that case, it was like you're doing interstate business because the sheets that you're washing are crucial to the business. (laughs) So you're bringing part of the prostitution business across the state. This is completely serious. You can look this up. Totally serious. Like, just having dirty sheets sent over the border got them busted. Oh, my God. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Always wash your sheets in-house. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Are you to the end of it? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Sheriff Lombardi basically lives out the rest of his days on his pension, stays a pretty quiet life, and he passes away in 1980. So, really... After this incident, he lived a pretty quiet quiet life, life. but there were some tangents that came out of it, so I kind of wanted to add those. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, I think that'll wrap this episode up. As usual, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Gavin, you want to hit them with a little contact information? Sure. You can email me directly at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at... Facebook.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, or you can go to MilwaukeeMafia.com, the best damn website out there (laughs) for Milwaukee Mafia stuff, loaded with podcast notes, other articles, FBI files, so you can see where I get this information from, and uh, all kinds of little treats. Sweet. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. We will be back next week with the Patreon. If you are not subscribed to the Patreon, please go check it out. Go to MilwaukeeMafia.com. You can find a link right on the page there to join it. $2 a month and it gets you access to a bunch of really cool extra content on the weeks that we don't drop an episode. So we will see you in two weeks and thanks everybody for tuning in and continued support. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.